What happened when people encountered Jesus? One thing is for sure, no one stayed the same. Skeptics, outcasts, politicians, and religious leaders alike all had strong reactions to him. Some walked away, but some believed. And in those lives, we see the hand of God filling in who they were meant to be. We see the rough outline of their lives given color and shape and form and made into something altogether unique and new and beautiful. No one who ever encountered Jesus was ever the same. For each one, it all started the same way. Meeting him face to face. Hi, good morning. It's so great to see you. Uh, we are in the front end of a series called Face to Face, as you can see, and we are moving through the Gospels, seeing at various places in which Jesus encountered individuals and seeing what we can be, uh, we can learn and extract from that. We are here this morning in two different passages, in John chapter 4 and then John chapter 3. So we'll begin here in John chapter 4, verse 7 through 26. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. John 3, verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God? For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You, 
must be born again. That's God's word this morning. Now, when my daughter was a little more than a year old, and of course she used to be that age, and I know a number of you out there have daughters or sons that age, and if my sources are correct, quite a few of you are on your way there too as well this morning, although you may not admit it. Okay. There was clearly there was more going on in her head that she could express with her mouth. She would sit in her high chair. We've got video of this, my wife and I do. Video of her in her high chair, and she's grasping spoons and plates and cups or whatever she can get and banging these things, and she would begin to scream and to squawk at her three brothers uh, about whatever was going on in her head, evidently something very important to her. This would go on for about half an hour, and of course, you know, the three stooges, I mean my three sons, would laugh at her back and begin to tease her about her high-pitched and frustrated attempts at communication. There was more going on in her head than her mouth could deliver. And so it is with anything as profound or lovely or incredible that we experience, whether it's a great song or a great thought or a great movie, it's hard to get across with your mouth what's happened, what you've experienced in your heart. And the same is true to the nth degree of the person of Jesus. But the closest I think we can come to putting language on his person is to do what we're doing this morning and throughout this series, which is to look at the accounts of the very people that Jesus himself encountered face-to-face here in the Gospels. Now, we just read two accounts. For those of you who were keeping score at home or reading closely, you'll notice they were presented in an inverted order. In other words, we read chapter 4 before chapter 3. Why? Well, in our modern you know, Bible, the chapter divisions are arbitrary assignments, and so we tend to treat these as we read them, here's the point, as separate, separate things, instead of, as I believe they ought to be treated, as two sides of the same coin. In other words, John here, the Gospel writer, is pressing across one truth in two parts, and I hope that seeing them in an inverted way will bring out the truths in them a bit more brilliantly today. So these accounts present two totally different people on the outside, but underneath they share something incredible in common. And if we can see that, if we can see what? A sexually promiscuous social outcast and a morally impeccable religious insider have in common, Perhaps we can see what we all have in common. And more importantly, what Jesus proposes he can and will do about it. So this morning we're going to see three truths from these two accounts. One is living water. Secondly, we'll be looking at a new birth. And finally, loving labor. Let's go, let's go here, begin in number one, living water. Where do we get this phrase from? You may be familiar with it. Of course, it's from a famous encounter Jesus has with a Samaritan woman. Jesus is passing through a place called Samaria. He's walking, it's hot, the sun's out, he gets tired, he stops to get a drink at a well, and a woman comes up and gets water from the well. He asks her for a drink, and she says to him in return, but you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? But Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So, all right, what's happening here? Well, first of all, what's happening is what the Bible calls evangelism what the Bible calls evangelism. Jesus is sharing who he is with this woman and inviting her into a relationship with him. Now, right away, let's stop because there's possibly nothing more offensive in our culture than this word right here, evangelism, and what it connotes. We don't like the idea that anyone could possibly have the insensitivity to ever suggest that someone could be wrong 
about what they believe about anything, especially about faith, which is why not just Vanderbilt University, as we heard a couple of weeks ago, but now last week the entire California State Public University system banned InterVarsity Christian Fellowship from meeting on any of their campuses. Yeah, IVF is one of the most well-respected, long-tenured groups in the U.S. Now, why is this? Well, because they believe in evangelism. We don't like the word evangelism, the word conversion. And while it's true that sometimes that many people have, in the name of Christianity, have picked up Jesus and used him like a bat to beat people, I want you to see that while Jesus is absolutely confronting this woman about her beliefs and her lifestyle right here, There is no trace of condescension, rudeness, or insensitivity, but only loving care. In other words, Jesus is evangelizing her out of a deep soul love for her. You say, where is that? Well, let's look. Almost every commentator points out that this woman comes to the well at noon and in the heat of a day, all alone, unlike the custom of the other women, which would be to come in groups at cooler periods of the day, the morning or the evening. Why was this? Well, because she's a social outcast due to her lifestyle. She had no friends. Second, men in that patriarchal culture rarely ever speak to women or spoke to women in public. I mean, go back through the Gospels and try to count the number of times that men speak to women. It's almost non-existent outside the person of Jesus. But here Jesus speaks to a woman, and not just any woman, but a Samaritan. You may know Samaritans were distant ethnic cousins of Jews who had mixed Judaism with their own brand of religious teaching. And the Jews therefore hated them for even existing. The Jews hated the Samaritans both religiously and racially. And therefore, can you see, Jesus is cutting across every barrier to reach into this woman's life. He's cutting across religious barriers, racial barriers, barriers, cultural barriers, moral barriers, gender gender barriers. He is looking at where he is sitting in this moment at a well. And now he pulls out, he engages her, pushes through every barrier and brings out a loaded metaphor aimed right at this woman's heart. He says, all right, you're thirsty. Hmm. I can give you a gift. I can give you living water. Now we've got to stop again because this is an absolutely outrageous claim. Let's not just move past it out of familiarity because what's Jesus claiming here? He's saying, I can give you something that's just crucial for you to go on living as water is. You know, the majority of what makes up you and me as human beings is water. I mean, you and I, we can live without a leg or two or an arm or an eye or lots of stuff, but you can't live without water. Without water, you die. And Jesus is saying, therefore, to this woman, in effect, if you don't have me, if you don't have what I can give you, you're going to die. You're going to die. So what does it mean? It means this. Like this woman, it means that we are all thirsty spiritually. Thirsty spiritually. That underneath the thirst, the desire for power, for love, for sex, for authority, for money, for beauty, for career advancement is really a kind of spiritual thirst. There is a thirst beneath the thirst. A thirst beneath the thirst. And Jesus is saying, only he can satisfy that. David Foster Wallace was an award-winning American fiction writer known around the world for his boundary-pushing style and storytelling. In 2005, Time magazine called one of his books one of the best novels written in English in the last 100 years. He was a genius with words, and he once wrote a sentence that was over 1,000 words long. 
A few years before the end of his life, he gave what's now a famous commencement speech at Kenyon College in Ohio. He entitled it, of all things, This is Water. This is Water. And this is what he had to say, again, not a Christian, what he said to the graduating class. He said this, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will never, excuse me, you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing, what he's saying, the darkest thing is about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful. It is that they're unconscious. They are default settings. Now, a few years After giving that speech, Wallace killed himself. And his last words were this, and they were frightening. Something will eat you alive. And here in this passage, can you see something is eating this woman alive? She is thirsting to death. Thirsting to death. So what's Jesus going to do, right? I mean, what should he do? Should he say, well, you know what? I know evangelism isn't very popular or politically correct, so I'll just leave you trapped forever in your cycle of codependent behavior and depression. No. Because Jesus loves her, he's going to do something about it. He's going to step in front of her lifestyle and lovingly evangelize her. Now watch how he does it. After he says, I can give you living water, she says, well, where is it? Can you give it to me? And then Jesus appears almost to change the subject on her. After she asks him for water, he says, okay, go get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. To which Jesus replied, you're right. You've, got, you've had five. And now you're living with a sixth man who you're not even married to. Well, what's he doing? Well, I'll tell you what he's not doing. He's not changing the subject. He hasn't changed it. She says, I'd like living water. And Jesus now is pressing her to see the truth about her own heart. She has been thirsting to death with other men. He's lovingly forcing her to acknowledge that her need for sex, for affirmation, for nonstop relationships, for acceptance in the arms and the company of men is killing her. Men for her have been what Samuel Coleridge's old poem described the ocean as to thirsty sailors, water water everywhere and not a drop to drink and there's a bit of humor now as we move on if you can see jesus drops this stunner of a statement on her right he says here's the secret of your heart and then there's a pause what does she say next pause pause sir i perceive you are a prophet (laughs) why he's getting close to the mark isn't he But then she, like all of us, tries to dodge Jesus. She dodges by presenting, asking a tough theological question to throw Jesus off the center of your heart. And this is what we all do whenever someone presses our hearts with the truth and the claims of Jesus. We try to, you know, press uh, press back and dodge by asking a question. This is the modern day. Well, what she actually asks is this. God, where is he worshipped today, Right? Where is God truly worshipped? We Samaritans worship at Mount Gerizim. You Jews worship in Jerusalem. Which one is right? And this is a modern day equivalent of asking when someone presses our hearts about Jesus. 
What about the pygmies in Africa? What's going to happen to them? What about homosexual marriage? What about the pastor who stole this money of the church or ministry who did that? Listen, these are all big questions, and this was a big question. But Jesus, in effect, is saying, listen, those are all important questions. The answers matter, but not as much as knowing me first. He says there's actually a right answer. Yes, the correct answer is the temple in Jerusalem. That's for God's worship, authentically. But a day is coming. A time is coming. Actually, he says literally an hour is coming when you won't need any temple at all have access to god and the woman at this she just gets confused she throws her hands up and says well all right well i don't know but when the messiah comes he'll sort it all out he'll explain it when the savior and healer of the world comes he'll explain it all and now what happens oh jesus leans toward her this is the place he's been trying to get her to from the beginning he says this i the one speaking to you i am he See, he's lovingly evangelizing her, showing her that nothing else can satisfy her soul thirst, and nothing else, friends, can satisfy yours as well. And the woman realizes this. And if you go on in the story, you'll see her life changes. Now, you may be saying, of course, Morgan, that's, I mean, that's nice. You know, Jesus worked for her, and Christianity is nice if it works for you, but, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to work for me. Now, let me just press you on that thought if that's you. If it works, listen, something that works for you is like your employee, right? Or, or a tool or an object or something you have in your hand. Listen, the gospel isn't a tool you hold in your hand. It's a claim Jesus has made on your heart. The gospel doesn't work for you. No, it works on you. It works in you. It's bigger than you. And Jesus' claim here is so big. Right in this verse, it can only be true or false. If I were to come up here this morning and say, hey, I am, I am the one speaking to you and the president of the United States. It's either true or false. Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah here, the long-awaited one, the promised one, the one who can come and heal the whole world. You can reject him as crazy, say, man, he's lying, but don't do him the lip service of saying, well, if he works for you, good. Listen, does he seem crazy here? Oh, if you keep reading, you see this woman's life is transformed. She's set free from the grip men have had on her heart. Crazy people don't love like this. Crazy people can't heal like this. But she may be saying, okay, fine. But this woman, you know, she needed Jesus. She was messed up. You know, she was tore up from the floor up. Sorry, I had to say that, right? You know, I'm good. I've got my life together. I'm faithful to my spouse. I'm a good person, right? I don't really need Jesus. If that's you, hang on to your seat. Get a firm grip there on the side because Jesus is about to get in your face about that. Because in our second account, moving on, he says something altogether different to an altogether different kind of person. Number two, we're going to look at what's called the new birth. Now, in our second account, we meet a man named Nicodemus, who, in contrast to the woman at the well, was a professionally moral person. He had, like, a Ph.D. in morality. He was a Pharisee, you see, someone at the top of the society. Pharisees were respected, educated, in charge. They were the Ivy League graduates of the day. And here, Nicodemus, who's an educated and older man, by contrast to the woman, poor and woman, he's not falling apart at the seams. And he comes to Jesus and he says this, Rabbi, 
We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. And what does Jesus say immediately to him in return? Right away, he says, truly, truly. That's a way of saying the essence of truth, the ultimate truth, I can tell you is this. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are what? Born again. Now, we've got to stop there. How many of you have heard this term born again before? Most of you, yeah, most of us have. Well, in almost every poll, and we've got to sort of define our terms here because in almost every poll today, unfortunately, most Americans would prefer, they've said, not to have a born-again Christian for a neighbor. Why? Well, because the term born-again has come to be almost like this separate class of Christian, a kind of person who's had to have some sort of deep, cathartic spiritual experience because of a deep inner brokenness, and as a result, has had to seek out rigid rules and structure to keep in place in their heart and soul what they never could before. You know, it's kind of like a pair of spanks for the soul. Sorry. All right. You're back. All right. Very good. Now, the problem with this view is that the passage just won't allow us to hold it. Look who Jesus is talking to, a person with no discernible moral flaws. He's rich, right? He's not poor. He doesn't need more moral structure. He's a Pharisee. He lived by it every day. He doesn't need his life cleaned up to be born again. It's squeaky clean. He's not broken, right? He's put together well. And Jesus says to him, the keeper of every commandment, you must be born again. Listen, the call to be born again isn't a call to more morality. No, it's a challenge to more morality. Because if more morality, if being a good person, a better person was all that God required, Jesus never would have said this. You know, for all our culture's supposed opposition to right and wrong and all things spiritual, we are still deeply moralistic. We swear, even though we say it larger is no God, that what matters is being a good person, right? Well, most people, parents would say, I just want to raise my kids to be a good person. We say at people's funerals when they died, oh, he was a good person. What are we doing? Trying to appease our consciences and make ourselves feel good about ourselves. We are still trying to save ourselves, still giving us a kind of definition of salvation. He's okay because he was good. That's the very definition of sin, trying to save yourself through your own effort. And the default setting of Nicodemus' heart is to think this, I must be a good person for God to love me, which is why Jesus goes right after him, right off the bat in this encounter, right from the get-go. The first words Jesus says to him are not, you must be a better person. No, he says, you must be born again. You must be changed from the inside out. Nicodemus, you must be saved from your morality. And now you think, you got to be thinking, Nicodemus has got to be asking, was it something I said, you know? As a matter of fact, it was. Look at what Nicodemus opens his conversation with. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a what? Teacher who's come from God. What does he call Jesus? Yeah, he calls him a teacher. In saying he's just a teacher, he's and only acknowledging Jesus, in other words, as someone with just a good message, he shows just how much he doesn't get it. And it's this word that sets Jesus off, and Jesus is set off here a bit. Look at the whole flow of the conversation. Nicodemus' first line is intro. It's about 30 words. And then Nicodemus' next response is about 20 words. Then his third response is about five words. And after that, we don't hear from him again. He shuts up. He quits. Why? 
Jesus is coming after his heart. In the same way he came after the Samaritan woman's only, instead of healing brokenness, he is tearing down pride. Tearing down pride. Who must be born again? You. You must be born again. Or you can't even see the kingdom. You can't grasp what it's all about until you become like a little baby. Say, God, I totally depend on you to take care of my every need. See, being born again is the heart of the Christian message. It's not a new message. It's not even an old message. It's the original message of Jesus to the very person who thinks he needs it the very least. You must be born again. This isn't a new American, you know, sort of non-denominational Christ community church type teaching. No, this is what the Roman Catholic African theologian Augustine experienced. He recorded this prayer about the moment he was born again in his book, his autobiography called Confessions. He said this, you called and cried out loud and shattered my deafness. You were radiant and resplendent. You put to flight my blindness. You were fragrant and I drew in my breath and now pant after you. I tasted you and I feel but hunger and thirst for you. You touched me and I am set on fire. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm alive, right, for the first time. I'm new. Well, nor is this just Roman Catholic tradition. Martin Luther, who was the Nicodemus of his day, he was an Augustinian monk. He denied himself for a time any pleasure or luxury. He realized that one day he had begun to believe the lie that all God wanted from him was to be a better person, that being a good person was the point of God and faith and church. Then one day as he was studying the book of Romans, Luther said this happened to him. He said, then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness which through grace and sheer mercy God gives to us through Christ and faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and I have gone through open doors into paradise. When I saw the difference that law was one thing and the gospel is another, I broke through. You say, this sounds like a miracle of the heart. And that's exactly what Bono, the lead singer of U2, calls it in his song, The Miracle. When he describes the new birth, he said this. He said, I woke up at the moment when the miracle occurred, heard a song that made some sense out of the world. Everything I ever lost now has been returned. The most beautiful sound I ever heard. Nicodemus says to Jesus, oh, you're just a teacher. Jesus says, teacher, uh, I haven't come as a teacher with some words to give you. I've come as a savior with my life to give you, which is why he goes on to say just a few moments later in the next verses, Nicodemus, listen, look, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life. In him, he's saying to Nicodemus, hey, you remember that story in the Old Testament, one about where the Israelites were camped in the desert and they rebelled against God and snakes began to come through and began to bite the people and they had poison flowing through their veins and killing them. What did Moses have to do, Nicodemus? He had to lift up a kind of a cross, like a pole of two sticks, put a bronze snake on it, symbolizing that God had put their sins on a pole and that God's power alone could save them. Remember that story, Nicodemus? Ah, you have the poison of pride flowing through your veins. You think you're a good person, but I'm telling you, you're dying. You're dying. Only I can save you. Oh, I haven't come to teach you, Nicodemus. I've come to save you. I'm not Israel's teacher. I'm Israel's savior. And for you to be saved, Nicodemus, for you to be born again, for that to happen, one day he's saying, I'm going to become poison on a pole poison on a pole. One day I'm going to do for you, Nicodemus, what you can never do for yourself, for you to be born again. I'm going to have to be lifted up. 
In other words, Nicodemus, for you to be born again, for anyone to be born again, it's going to take this. Finally, number three, loving labor. Loving labor. Now, I saw all four of my children being born because I wasn't the one giving birth, you see. In case that was any question this morning. Now, none of them were particularly happy about it. None of them came out smiling and cheering. A couple of them actually had a, some traumatic births, my wife will tell you. But here's the thing. For all of them and for all of us, being born was not something that a child does. Not something my children did. It was something they did not choose. It happened to them. Listen, my children weren't brought into the world through their own effort, through their own pain, their own trauma. No, they were all brought into the world through the effort and pain and trauma of another, my wife. And so it's a bit harder, I believe, for us to grasp this metaphor right here than it was for Nicodemus, because Nicodemus lived in a world without painkillers, right? No idea of germ theory, no EMS team to rescue you if things go wrong at home or on the way to the hospital. In that day, every birth to every woman meant she put her life on the line every time. Every birth was a bloody risk. And to a large extent, the same is true today. Many babies back then, many babies born today, are only born through and because of the death of the mother. So what's Jesus saying to Nicodemus? He's saying, listen, new life can only come into you through the pain and suffering and death of another. And in case you think I'm pressing it too far, look ahead to John chapter 16, where Jesus talks explicitly about his death. He says to his disciples, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then he goes on to say, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time, literally says, her hour has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born of the world. Again, Jesus literally uses the word hour here. And if you're familiar with the gospel of John, you may know that the word hour is actually a technical term Jesus uses throughout his life to describe his death. He is always saying, my hour is not yet come, right? The hour is coming or the hour will come. And here he is connecting his hour, his death, to the experience of a woman, of a mother giving birth. In other words, Jesus is saying, like a mother, I'm going to die to bring new life. I'm going to bring her children life like that. But he's saying nothing could bring me greater joy than to do that. For the joy set before me, I'm going to endure the pain, the death, for bringing joy and new life in the world. He said, I'm going to become poison on a pole for all those who are thirsting to death. And what did Jesus, therefore, in the end experience on the cross? A kind of infinite, cosmic thirst. He cried out to his father, my God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? What was he doing? He's longing for the only thing in that moment that could quench his soul thirst, the relationship with God. But in that moment, he found nothing. He was eaten alive by something, wasn't he? Your sin, my sin, our sin. So that through his, it's so beautiful, his loving labor on the cross... We Samaritans and we Nicodemuses could be born again. You say, well, what does that look like? Actually, looks kind of like what happened in Nicodemus. Because later on, in the book of John, we see him, Nicodemus, this older, rich, wealthy, powerful man, not walking away necessarily from Jesus, but no, reflecting on his words, pondering them, taking them in. He begins to press back against the Pharisees, saying, does our, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him? But the Pharisees shrug him off. 
condemn Jesus and crucify him. But then something amazing happened. At Jesus' crucifixion, when almost all of his followers had abandoned him, Nicodemus didn't. When it was time for Jesus' body to be brought down from the cross, do you know who asked to do it and to care for it? Ah, two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They took it down. They cleaned it. They prepared it for burial. This was unheard of. Handling dead bodies, preparing them for burial was considered woman's work in that day. And a Pharisee in particular would never dare to touch a dead body because it would render him unfit, unclean to go into God's presence in the temple. But Nicodemus does it, doesn't he? He handles the bloodied body of the Lord Jesus in front of all his friends, all his peers. He is risking open rejection and ridicule by the establishment. Every person he's ever known is watching him do this. Every person he holds dear, he's doing this in front of for the sake of Jesus. Was it scary? You bet. And it's scary to follow Jesus today. If you're coming to him this morning and you're saying, oh, well, I would like to be, be a Christian, but do I have to give up this? Or maybe do I have to do that or, or go there? Listen, this isn't for you. This isn't for you. If you're asking, you're still stuck like Nicodemus, thinking it's about doing things, right? Becoming a better person. You can't see the kingdom. And what it means to become a Christian is this. You see, there's a kingdom with the king, right? And who rules the kingdom? You are the king, not you. It's the king. The king rules you. The king owns you. It's his kingdom, not yours. And to become a Christian, to be born again, you do one thing, the Bible says. You repent. To repent means you turn from the thing that's killing you, which is you. Either living for pleasure, perhaps like a Samaritan woman, or just thinking your morality, being a good person is all that God wants, like Nicodemus. See, Jesus Jesus is saying to both kinds of people, the one on the top and on the bottom, you both need me, and this is what the Samaritan woman and Nicodemus had in common. They're standing before God, which is what? Absolute poverty, total need, total dependency, and this is why, by the way, the gospel has always been good news to the poor and the morally wrecked, because the poor know, the Samaritan woman knew she couldn't save herself. I mean, she'd already he tried that and been a failure at being good. But the gospel is always the hardest to receive for those who were good at being good. And this was my story. I was good at being good. Oh, God, I was so good at being good. I could memorize whole passages of the Bible, recite the list, thought I knew the Bible better than anyone around me, thought it was about trying hard. I didn't know it was about becoming and being new. And the night Jesus found me as a college student, and gave birth to me. I was wearing a real men follow Jesus t-shirt. I had a James Avery cross ring on given to me by my pastor's daughter's girlfriend. And I was playing in the church band. See, I thought I thought I was a Christian. You couldn't have convinced me I wasn't. I thought it was about trying hard. But listen, it doesn't matter what the sign says on the outside. It's the kind of seed you have on the inside. Do you have the Father's DNA? Have you been born again? Jesus came and offered me that night what was for me his irresistible grace. I said, Lord, make me new, and he did. The Bible came alive to me. Oh, the power of sin began to be broken. And most importantly of all, Jesus became real and hasn't stopped. And the same, friends, can be true of you today. Let's pray as we close. Lord, we just come. And Lord, we're coming this morning. I'm coming. Trusting and asking you to do what only you can do. We can't make ourselves alive. 
can't cause ourselves to be born. But Lord, you said that to all those who would receive you, open up their hearts to you, you would give them the right to be born again, to be called the children of God. And we're trusting you for that right now today. If this is you this morning, you say, Morgan, I didn't kind of know what I was coming for today. I didn't realize I was where I was with God. Yet today I see that I want to become a Christian. I want to not just sign up for something, but sign over my rights to my life. I want to follow Jesus. I've never been born again. Would you raise your hand this morning? I want to pray for you. Trust that God's going to do a miracle in your heart right now. Yeah, thank you. Yes. Yes, thank you, Jesus, for these. Oh, yes, Lord. If that was you, with your hand raised, would you just pray this with me? Say, Lord Jesus, I I come to you today asking you to make me new. I'm asking you to give me new life. I want to be born again. I repent of my old life, of trusting me to save me. Give my life to you. Lord, I ask that you would come and save me and be my king, Lord of my life. Thank you for dying on the cross in my place, living a life I should have lived but couldn't. Thank you for your mercy toward me. In Jesus' name, Lord, change my life. Amen. Amen. Now, listen. Not the words a person prays, it's the motive and the motivation of their heart. I prayed just that simple prayer that night. Lord, make me new. That was it. Jesus totally renovated me. You know, he doesn't just want to come in and shift around some furniture. C.S. Lewis says, you know, we think that God wants to come, on, come and renovate a whole, another room in our house. He said he wants to build a new castle on top of the old property. See, That's what he wants to do. And so we've got actually one more thing left. We're not even close to being done. Don't let that make you nervous. This morning, if you prayed that prayer, if you've given your life to Jesus and trusted him, or if in the recent past, sometime in your life, You've prayed that prayer. You've received Jesus as Lord of your life, Savior, King. And you've never been, the Bible calls, water baptized. Which is the, an identification with Jesus of being buried with Him. Now, coming up out of the water in, in newness of life. We want to offer that to you today. We've got our baptismal ready. You'll notice Pastor Brett's over there. Listen, you may not have come thinking this what was going to happen to you today. Or that you knew that you needed this. That's okay. Listen, I don't come here thinking I know what everything is going to happen. I want to trust that Jesus is going to move and Jesus is going to stir hearts and he's going to do something greater than what we can imagine. So this morning, if that's you, you've never been water baptized. Listen, some of you will take that stupid ice bucket challenge, but you'll never be water baptized. You need to come out. God bless him. Thank you for that ice bucket. God for it. How much more should you obey Jesus? Yeah, there we go. Be water baptized. Yeah. Praise the Lord. All right, listen, Pastor Brett's going to get them taken care of. And listen, there's, there's 
clothes, but who cares about clothes? There's makeup. Who cares about makeup and hair? Man, this is about serving, loving, following Jesus. And so um, we, Pastor Brett's going to get them all situated. Uh, but we, our band's here. We're going to sing and respond and take a few moments here. We've made time and space for this. So you're, you're okay. Your kids are okay. There's nothing greater you could do today than this right here. So would you stand this morning and just sing and respond with us?